Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Well, you know, the gut really is the cornerstone of health, and it's the cornerstone of our immune system. You know, up to 80% of your immune function is derived from the gut. So when your gut's not functioning well, you know, potentially your immune system's not functioning well. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio, except this week where we're coming to you on Saturday. Saturday. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 184 with author and naturopath Dr. Darren Engels. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn why you need to be as careful of Lyme in California as you are in Connecticut, how every part of the body has its own microbiome that needs to be tended, and why everyone sick with Lyme disease should get their thyroid tested. Thanks, Aurora. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week, we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week, we had listeners from Puerto Rico to Portugal and from Norway to New Zealand. Also, a big thank you to all our longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lyme Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in, this week's top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Los Angeles, California. Number 9, Seattle, Washington. Number 8, Ponte Vedra, Florida. Number 7, Hertzville, Australia. Number 6, San Clemente, California. Number 5, Leduc, Canada. Number 4, Wenatchee, Washington. Number 3, Poughkeepsie, New York. Number 2, Portland, Oregon. And number 1, Binghamton, New York, just an hour and a half south from us mm-hmm. on Route 12B. Hello, Binghamton. If you like what we're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. At least click on the stars, whatever you think we deserve. We think we deserve a 4 or 5, but if you have bones to pick with us, pick some bones. We don't mind. The good, the bad, the ugly, we'll take it. Everything we hear in terms of feedback makes us a better podcast for you. And if you really love what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja patron. Just go on over patreon.com and search for Lime Ninja Radio. And a big thank you to our new patrons this week, John and Lisa. Thank you. 
Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Dr. Darren Ingalls. Dr. Ingalls received his Bachelor of Science degree in medical technology from Purdue University and his Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine from Baster University. Baster. Baster. Yes. Excuse me. Um, not We're not basting a turkey here. No. <laughs> Baster. University in Seattle, Washington. He completed his residency at the Baxter Center for Natural Health. Dr. Ingalls is a licensed naturopath in both Connecticut and California, where he maintains his practices. He focuses on environmental medicine with a special emphasis on Lyme disease, autism, pans and pandas, and chronic immune dysfunction. He's the author of the upcoming book, The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with author and naturopath, Dr. Darren Engels. Hello, Dr. Engels. This is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Good morning. How are you? I am very well. The sun has finally come out here in central New York after about, oh, six weeks. Been a very long winter on the East Coast. It has. Now you have offices on the East Coast and the West Coast. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. I have an office in Fairfield, Connecticut, and Irvine, California. So when the weather gets really cold and gray in the East Coast, I get to come out to the West Coast and enjoy some sunshine. Wow, I am envious. <laughs> and what inspired you to get into medicine? Well, uh, I just had some uh, personal experiences uh, with uh, with chronic health problems that really weren't being resolved through conventional medicine. And I mean, I was a microbiologist before I was a doctor. I used to work at a hospital in Chicago, and uh, I kind of saw what was going on in conventional medicine and just realized that, uh, that I think a lot of the humanity of medicine was sort of uh, dissipating. So uh, dealing with some, you know... Uh, health issues and seeing what was going on in medicine. I uh, was introduced to naturopathic medicine, and I just think philosophically it, it really aligned with what I believe, how medicine should be practiced. And I like the fact that naturopathic medicine was really aimed at getting to the root cause of illness and really not just treating the symptoms. So so that uh, that kind of led me down that path. And just for those folks who are kind of hearing naturopaths for the first time, or maybe they've heard the label, but don't really know what it is. What is a naturopathic doctor? So a naturopathic doctor is trained as a primary care doctor. And, you know, we go to medical school like medical doctors and osteopathic doctors. It's just, you know, they have their schools and we have ours. And our first two years of training are really identical where it's basic sciences, you know, things like anatomy, chemistry, physiology, and so forth. The big difference uh, really is philosophically. You know, again, I think naturopathic medicine puts a heavy emphasis on looking at root cause. And I think allopathic medicine or, you know, your medical doctor is really more of a disease-based system where you you treat mostly the symptoms. So in their second two years of school, they go into hospitals. They do what are called clerkships where they do, you know, pediatrics, OBGYN, so forth. And since we're family-based medicine, we do our clinical training in outpatient clinics and learn family medicine. And, of course, our therapies are, are quite different. You know, we're really geared more towards natural therapies such as, you know, diet, nutrition, and herbal medicine, and homeopathy, and physical medicine, and, you know, really trying to find things that, that work in conjunction with the body. So 
we're trained in, you know, uh, drugs and we do use them in some cases, but it's not necessarily our first line of treatment and, you know, it's maybe the last line. So we really try and encourage the body to heal on its own and recognize that the body has the innate wisdom to heal. We just need to give it the tools to do that. So again, our, our focus is really trying to, uh, you know, get the body to heal on its own. I can hear thousands of people out there saying, I want one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think every, every doctor, no matter what your training is, you know, we, we all go into it with the, the goal of, you know, getting to the root cause of the problem. But I, I think just with the nature of how medicine is practiced in this country, and, you know, I feel bad for my allopathic colleagues that are really pressed for time. You know, you get seven minutes with your doctor as an average visit, and if you're a complex uh, person like a Lyme patient, you know, seven minutes doesn't get you very far. So, I mean, you know, my first office visit two hours, and, you know, we spend a lot of time going through health history and, you know, trying to do the detective work to figure out what's going on with people. So. Uh, it's just really a, a very different philosophical approach. I was just up at the Midcoast Maine Lyme Conference where I was right. the MC, and Dr. Rawls was up there, and Dr. Bill Rawls and Dr. Neil Spector. And those are two physicians who I say have swallowed the green pill. And in reading over your book and your bio, you've swallowed the green pill too. You've had Lyme disease. Right. Well, you know, that's part of how I got into this. I had moved to Connecticut from Seattle uh, after my residency, and uh, about three weeks before I was due to open my own practice, I got uh, classic Lyme disease. You know, I had the headache, the 105 fever, I had a big bullseye rash on the back of my leg. So I was actually one of the few people that had classic Lyme disease. And, you know, I went on, you know, standard doxycycline, and after four days, I felt perfectly fine. But, uh, you know, being a new business owner, new doctor, I was doing everything in my business, working long, you know, 10-hour, 12-hour days. And after about eight months of doing that, I started to relapse. And, of course, I went back on antibiotics and it did nothing. And I changed antibiotics and it did nothing. And I spent eight or nine months going through various courses of you know, different antibiotic combinations and really got worse and worse. So I was fortunate to uh, have had a handful of patients that had worked with a doctor in New York City, uh, a Chinese medical doctor, and I went to see him, and he started treating me with Chinese herbs and uh, some other acupuncture, and in about a month, I was about 80 85% better. So it was really, I think, my wake-up call to come back to my naturopathic roots and start really evaluating what I was doing in my life, what was keeping me from getting well again. And again, I wasn't sleeping well, and I wasn't eating well, and I really wasn't taking care of myself. So I think a lot of that's really what precipitated the relapse. I mean, I got I relapsed in the dead of winter, so I, I wasn't convinced at all that it was a, a new infection again. Uh, not that it can't happen, but I, I was quite sure that wasn't the case. But, you know, I just realized that, you know, how our, our body operates, how our, our terrain is functioning, really plays a huge role in... Uh, you know, getting over the Lyme hump. And I think that's often a big obstacle for people dealing with chronic Lyme is you know, all these other factors that influence our gut, our immune system. And, you know, often you know, I think that's what stops people from getting well. Will you talk about terrain for a little bit? I know that's kind of like a wonky term and we just mean the body in which the disease is presenting. But will you, will sure, you, you, know, will you yeah, will you explain yeah. that a little bit more? Yeah, when we talk about the terrain, we're really talking about everything in your body that's supposed to operate well. 
And, you know, much like I guess you can think of, you know, maybe a farmer with a field, you know, there's all the things you have to do to the field to make sure that your crops grow right. You got to make sure there's enough moisture. You got to make sure there's enough sunlight. You got to make sure that, you know, everything's done in a very specific way. And our bodies, you know, to a certain degree kind of operate that way. And I think there's so many external factors that can damage the terrain. And so that can be exposure to chemicals. It can be stress. It can be poor diet. It can be uh, lack of sleep. You know, all these things influence our body at a cellular level that really starts to alter the function of those cells. And as our cells, you know, stop functioning well, you know, we don't feel well. So it really is about, you know, going through head to toe and looking at all these different factors that might be having a negative impact on our our body. And I know that sounds kind of vague and nebulous, but it, it, it really is a very specific uh, process of going through, you know, again, what are you eating? Uh, are you eating, you know, organic food? Are you eating food that's contaminated with a lot of chemicals? Are you not sleeping well? If you're not sleeping well, you know, your body doesn't get a chance to repair and restore itself. Are you exposed to you know, high amounts of stress? You know, we've got plenty of research of all the negative aspects of what stress does to our immune system, what it does to our gut. So, you know, as you kind of go through each of these parts, we can see where there may be something that uh, just isn't functioning well. And then, you know, what do we do about, you know, correcting that dysfunction? So, again, it's, it's, it's a bit of an involved process, and I think, you know, that's part of our uh, wheelhouse as a naturopath is that, you know, we really are, are trained quite well to go through that process with people and try and help identify, you know, what these obstacles here are. You know, the funny story, my background, I'm an acupuncturist. And I practice here in central New York, and I used to ask my patients, so, you know, tell me about your stress levels. And they say, well, you know, I think I'm doing okay. And then you'd get later on exactly in the interview and they say, well, you know, my, my daughter uh, is pregnant and she's 14 and my son's just getting out of jail and I just had to put my parents in a nursing home. And they say, wait a minute, I thought you said you didn't have any stress. And they would inevitably say, well, I think I'm dealing with it pretty well. And in the back of the mind, I would always think, then why are you here in my office? <laughs> you know, so well, that, yeah. that, that stress, stress is sneaky because it's the old hot water and frog thing is we don't realize how much it's building up until things collapse. Exactly. And I think, you know, we've sort of trained mentally to handle the, the mental aspect of it. You know, we can, we can deal with a lot of stress. We can function and, you know, go on in our lives, but that doesn't mean that that's not having a negative impact on our body. And look, you know, even sometimes stress is good stress. You know, not all stress is bad stress. You know, there could be a, a, a good life change that happens for people. You know, maybe they got a new job. Maybe they, they're moving to someplace, which they might think is a very good thing, but that can still be very stressful on the body. So, you know, I think sometimes how our, our body interprets stress might be a little bit different than how our mind's interpreting it. But nonetheless, you know, I, I, you live in America in 2018, <laughs> you probably got stress <laughs> to some level. I would think so. Now. Obviously, or it's obvious to me that you have Lyme patients in your office in Connecticut. Are you seeing Lyme patients? Or let actually, let's back up again. Let's just say tick-borne infection, right? Right. Are you seeing tick-borne infections in the California office as well? You know, I have as many uh, tick-borne infected people here in California as I do in Connecticut. It's just that in California, it's highly unrecognized, and it's amazing to me how. I'll say ignorant of the healthcare providers are here in California to it. Uh, and I've had, you know, uh, patients go see very well-known doctors in the area 
and be told that you can't have Lyme. Lyme doesn't exist in California. And uh, I'm guessing these people don't read. <laughs> There's certainly plenty of evidence that California has become an emerging area of tick-borne illness. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of it here. And I think, you know, this is the problem. If you live outside of New England or the central Midwest, uh, there's sort of this attitude that Lyme doesn't really exist. And uh, I don't know if you saw this came out just uh, a few days ago. There was a study that found that uh, birds yes. uh, are yes. really what are responsible for spreading a lot of these ticks you know, elsewhere around the country. And, of course, you know, birds fly for hundreds of miles, and then you know, they set down, and that tick starts to populate in that area, and then another bird picks it up and carries it somewhere else. So uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense in what I've been seeing. You know, I've got patients all over the country and in areas you know, such as Arizona and Texas Florida and places that we don't typically think of Lyme disease as being endemic, and yet they have it. And even by the most strict, you know, of CDC criteria, you know, they test positive. You know, clearly there's uh, there's a lot going on that uh, I certainly think uh, public health officials haven't recognized. But you know, this is this is a huge epidemic. It is you know, the fastest growing infectious disease in the world, specifically Lyme, and uh, you know we really see it everywhere. And I was kind of interested when I was at ILADS last year, uh, listening to these doctors coming from all over the world, even Africa, describing, you know, different strains of Borrelia in Africa. Boy, even I would have thought Africa might be a place that's immune to it, but, you know, it's not anymore. So uh, it's something that, uh, you know, anyone who's had these chronic symptoms uh, that haven't been well explained, you know, in my world, you, know, you have to at least rule out a tick-borne illness as a cause. Absolutely. and. I think part of this has to be just awareness on, on and beginning of testing and looking for this. We kind of assumed, we meaning the medical community, that once we had modern medicine, that the body was kind of this sterile Petri dish. And occasionally things would come in and the, the immune system would take care of it or it needed a little bit of help taking care of it. And then, you know, kind of got this idea, oh, there's, you know, there's a biome and there's a, mouth biome and there's a vaginal biome and there's all these supportive bacteria on us but now one of the presenters i think it was dr specter showed a slide of a ms patient and a healthy brain and both brains had the same in uh infections had the same parasites in them once well parasites microbes in them right and the difference was the load so the right. MS patients just had a higher loads. Load. So I think we're starting the, the the veils coming off of our eyes. We're beginning to see, you know, not only are we carrying around microbes in our gut, we're carrying around microbes everywhere. And it's just a matter of, like you said, the terrain is: can we manage them, or are we falling behind in in taking care of them? And that's where yeah, your well, that's where your book comes in. Right. You know, I, I think, you know, again, I was a microbiologist by training. And, you know, when I was going through school, you know, 20 plus years ago, you know, we were taught that the bladder was sterile. We were taught that some of these body parts, the small intestine was sterile. And we've now learned that they're not sterile at all. But they do have very slow growing organisms, which means they're hard to culture. And therefore, that's why, you know, we, we thought that there wasn't anything really significant growing there. Uh, we've just now learned that they're they're different stuff, and yeah, pretty much every body part, whether it's internal or external, carries its own natural microbiome. Now, I, I think we've we've not realized that these bugs are here to protect us, and you know when we start getting infection for a lot of these things, 
it's not necessarily an organism that doesn't belong. It's just something allowed that organism to overgrow, and that's what's creating the problem. So, you know, what, again, we come back to what is it in your body? What is it in the terrain that shifted that's allowed that organism to proliferate and become more, you know, overactive than it should be? But, you know, I think we come back to this fundamental principle that, you know, these bugs are here to protect that's a completely different mindset than they are invaders that need to be destroyed. Right. Right. But when you look at the fact that, you know, we are 90% microbe, there are 10 times more microbes in our body than human cells. <laughs> so we literally are, are 90% microbe. That's got to tell you a lot about, you know, why we have so many more microbes in and on our body than we do cells. You know, that clearly they're not there to be a problem. Uh, it's obvious that they're there to protect us. And again, you know, when you look at the research, particularly at the gut microbiome and how an important role it plays in our immune function. And of course, now we have all this evidence coming out how it affects you know, weight metabolism and mood and sleep and you know, it really gets tied into a lot of these chronic health issues. Um, you know, again, it just became clear to me that uh, they're our friends, not our foe. You start the treatment section of your book which is entitled The Lyme Solution, a five-part plan with the gut. And tell me what, why you start there. This is a softball question. So we just talked about it, but you start there, and, <laughs> and that's why. So, but what have you seen in your 30 years practicing that makes the gut so important? Well, you know, the gut really is the cornerstone of health, and it's the cornerstone of our immune system. You know, up to 80% of your immune function is derived from the gut. So when your gut's not functioning well, you know, potentially your immune system's not functioning well. And so many, certainly Lyme patients I work with, you know, have a history even prior to getting Lyme disease, often of some sort of gastrointestinal problem. And I think what's happened in America anyway is that so many people have had GI problems for years that it's so normal to them that they don't even realize it's not normal. You know, so if you've had, you know, chronic constipation or diarrhea or gas or bloating and you have it every day, it's just your norm and you, maybe you don't think anything of it. But you know, it tells us a lot about how that organ's functioning. And if, it, you know, you're not digesting and assimilating your food well and everything else isn't being processed the way it should, you know, there's a potential for disruption. And again, the trickle-down effect, uh, I certainly think, you know, can affect your immune function, uh, which, you know, for most chronic Lyme patients, we probably agree is not working as well as it should. So, you know, the goal of getting behind, you know, treating the gut is really about helping any kind of, you know, repairing any damage that might have been done, you know, repleting the microbiome that may have been destroyed. And, of course, certainly anyone with Lyme who's been on antibiotics, particularly if you've been on long term, you know, there's a high potential of, you know, disrupting that normal gut flora. And, you know, even with all the new tests coming out, like, you know, U-Biome and so forth, where we're getting more information about what microbes are there, I don't think we still really know yet what should be there. And I think we'll be hard-pressed to find a, quote, normal person anymore that's never had any exposure to antibiotics or anything else that could have disrupted their microbiome. I think, you know, that's a very small subset of our population. So... You know, I think we're going to have a bit of a challenge in trying to establish what really is normal. And because the technology is so new, you know, we're still discovering what is there, what is part of our normal microbiome. So it's, I think it's a very exciting area, but, you know, we, we really have to focus on helping people, you know, establish, you know, better bowel patterns, better bowel habits, you know, getting the gut back 
where it's supposed to be. So I talk very specifically in the book about different nutrients that we can use, again, to help improve gut integrity, you know, different probiotics people can take to help repopulate their gut to get that back to normal. You know, I think it's interesting, you know, I always think of this study I read, it was a rat study, uh, so take it for what it's worth, but they gave the rat one dose of antibiotics. They want to see how long it would take for the rat gut to repopulate back to normal. And I was shocked. I mean, I knew it was going to be a while, but for a single dose, not one day, but a single dose, it took six months for the rat gut to repopulate back to normal. So I can only imagine what's happening to us humans when we're on antibiotics for weeks, months, years. You know, how long would it potentially take to get your gut microbiome back to normal? Um, you know, I, I think we're looking at, you know, potentially years of, you know, trying to accomplish that. So, uh, but that's the place to start. And for me, and certainly for any of my chronic Lyme patients, that's always the first thing we look at, you know, what's going on in the gut. Now, Dr. Ingalls, you also see a lot of people with autoimmune issues in your practice. And right. do you link autoimmunity with the gut? Do you see that as the root cause or a root cause? Absolutely. You know, it's, I think, you know, what's going on in chronic Lyme and what's going on in immune, autoimmune disease and whether it's lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, again, I think the fundamental problem of what's happened, again, is something in the immune system has shifted. Your immune system is now recognizing things that are normal as being abnormal. And what's really interesting, if you go into the research, you'll find that a lot of autoimmune diseases have known microbes as potential triggers. Uh, so whether it's lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, there's this concept in immunology called molecular mimicry. And what that means is that there's a molecule on the microbe that might be similar to something in our own tissue. So the immune system tries to go after the microbe, but accidentally starts interfering with that tissue. And whether it's your joints, your gut, your muscles, uh, your brain, uh, you know, that can happen. So we're starting to learn again more that, again, something can shift with these microbes, again, that are part of our normal flora, that the immune system is now starting to recognize them as being abnormal. And uh, that's starting to trigger a lot of these autoimmune issues. So yeah, when someone comes in with a a known autoimmune problem, uh, actually part of my workup is looking at, is there an infectious etiology to that autoimmune disease? You know, I think MS is a great example. Uh, You know, my Lyme turned into MS. And, you know, when you talk to a radiologist, you, know, you can't tell the difference between a lesion on a brain of a, a, when you do an MRI from a Lyme patient from an MS patient. They look identical. So, you know, is it possible that Lyme is a cause for MS? My opinion, absolutely. In fact, most of my practice, when I see an MS patient, when we test and treat them for Lyme, most of them test positive. And if you treat them for Lyme, you know, their MS gets better. So that tells you that you're, you're on the right track. But I've seen it with, you know, uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other neurological diseases, uh, and certainly other autoimmune diseases. So, you know, whether it's Lyme or some other infectious agent, I certainly think that can be a, a potential root cause of these autoimmune problems. So, when you discover, and actually, let's stop there for a second. Would you mind saying which labs that you use to test, or do you do it by clinical diagnosis? Well, at the end of the day, it's always by clinical diagnosis. You know, what's really interesting is, uh, again, as a microbiologist who used to do this test, uh, it's, it's really fascinating to me that doctors still don't know that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. It always has been. The lab test has never been diagnostic, ever. And it was never intended to be that way. It was really designed to monitor people that had known Lyme disease. 
So even if you go to the CDC's website, it tells you that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. So, you know, I still do lab testing because I think a positive test certainly gives us evidence that there's been exposure. But because most of these tests that are available are antibody tests, it's just looking at the immune response. You know, that doesn't tell us that you have Lyme. You know, theoretically, you could be bitten by a tick that carries Lyme. Your immune system does what it's supposed to do. It gets rid of it. But now you've made antibodies against Borrelia because you've had that exposure. So seeing those antibodies on a piece of paper doesn't necessarily mean that you have Lyme. It just means you've had exposure. But if you've had exposure and you have all the clinical symptoms to support it, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I think that's the way, you know, that I sort of approach Lyme. And, you know, a negative test because of the poor sensitivity of the testing. And for people who don't know, you know, any lab test out there, you know, when you send your blood and urine and stool into the lab, they're doing a test. In the lab world, a good test is considered to be highly sensitive and highly specific if it's more than 95% of both. And what that means is that sensitivity is what is the likelihood the lab test picks up the disease that you're testing for. And the specificity is what is the likelihood that if you have a positive test that's specific to that illness. So a good lab test is going to be high in both. Well, what's really interesting is when you look at the standard Western blot or uh, the Lyme screen test, you know, they're only about 43% sensitive. It doesn't even pick up half the people that actually have the illness. So for a test that doesn't even pick up half the people that have the illness, you know, that's kind of a problem. So the fact that we, you know, relied, and I say we collectively, the medical community, have relied on this very poor, sensitive, poor, specific test as a marker that you do or do not have Lyme, I mean, it's just kind of silly. So um, the labs that I've been using, uh, uh, I use a lot of a lab out of New Jersey called Medical Diagnostic Lab. Uh, I like them because they uh, actually send us, the doctor, a copy of the Western blot. And since I used to do these tests, I know what I'm looking for. So uh, I use them. I like Igenex, of course. Igenex has been, you know, the leader in Lyme testing forever. Uh, there's a new lab that came out, which is fascinating, and I'm now on their scientific advisory board called Global Lyme Diagnostics. And what's really exciting about this test, the doctor that developed it was actually, he's a vaccinologist. He was actually tasked to find a vaccine for dogs for Lyme. Well, you know, to find a vaccine, you've got to find something that's common to all Borrelia because we've got at least 100 different strains of Borrelia in the United States alone and about 300 strains worldwide. So he found this common sequence to all Borrelia. And I don't know that he ever actually created a vaccine. I don't think he did. But he did turn it into a test. So there's a specific sequence that is very specific to all the Borrelia and not just Borrelia burgdorferi. And so I've been running that in parallel with other labs. And in many cases, you know, it'll come up positive when other tests are negative. So I think that's one of the newer exciting tests out there that has a better likelihood of picking up Lyme. Now, it's still an antibody test, and it comes with all of the issues that any antibody test does, but because that antibody now is a very specific antibody, at least if that test comes up positive, there really is no such thing as a false positive. I mean, a positive means you've had exposure. Uh, so that one's been very exciting. And then uh, I like Armin Labs out of Germany. I like the fact that it's not an antibody test, that it's testing for cytokine activity. And cytokines are other parts of the immune system usually get activated when there is you know, active Lyme or active Bartonella. And the fact that they do test for a lot of the other tick-borne diseases, uh, 
makes it very easy to, uh, again, help pinpoint, you know, particularly when people are flaring or if they're in that acute phase where maybe they haven't made antibodies yet, uh, this test to be very valuable in just establishing whether, you know, Lyme's part of the problem. I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very serious about that. Uh, and since you have your ear to the track, so to speak, on the testing community, and you're part of that community, actually, as, as part of the advisory board there, what excites you coming down the chute? Well, I think what's exciting is that we're starting to develop more technologies. Again, you know, the problem has always been that, you know, A, it's an antibody test, and B, it's only been for Borrelia burgdorferi. So I think the more that we start finding different aspects that are common to all Borrelia, we're just casting a much wider net of being able to pick up on these people that, that have Borrelia exposure that's not necessarily a Borrelia burgdorferi. I mean, we know that out here on the West Coast, you know, up to half of the cases of Lyme are Borrelia miyamotai. They're not Borrelia burgdorferi. So, you know, IGENEX does a test for Borrelia miyamotai, but right now I think they're the only ones really looking at that. So, uh, and, you know, when you go to other parts of the world, we know that the species in Europe and the species in Asia, they're completely different. And yet we're still doing the same test, you know, around the world. So I think what we're going to find is that we're going to find more uh, companies developing technology that's going to find, you know, like Global Lyme Diagnostics, going to start finding other aspects of Borrelia that are unique to Borrelia that will really help differentiate it from other microbes. And, you know, if we can ever get to a point where we can better culture Lyme, that would be tremendously helpful because that would certainly tell us about what's there, what's active. You know, there was a lab in Pennsylvania that I, I think they went out of business. Uh, they were trying to do culture, but, you know, the nature of spirochetes is that they are just very hard to culture under the best of circumstances. Um, I'm still very concerned about DNA technologies and what, how they're being interpreted uh, because, again, there's a lot of complications that go into DNA PCR testing. Uh, the primer that gets used, that's the little segment that you use to help identify the organism is very important. And uh, just historically, I know a lot of labs that did not have very good primers. So basically what it means that the segment they were picking up on may not necessarily have been, you know, Lyme. Maybe it was something else. So there, again, it's still a, an emerging technology. And uh, I think we'll find you know, that it improves, that the, uh, the results improve. But uh, I think a lot of the companies that are doing it now, I'm still a little bit suspicious on what those results mean. And, you know, again, it doesn't tell us anything about activity. Uh, it just tells us potentially about exposure. So, you know, with all the lab testing out there, you know, now we've got probably, you know, 10, 12, you know, labs out there doing varying types of technology for Lyme. Uh, I think as a practitioner and certainly as a patient, you know, again, if you've got the clinical symptoms of Lyme and you've done your testing and maybe it was gray or wishy-washy or maybe it was just flat-out negative, uh, but you've ruled out everything else. You know, you've ruled out other autoimmune diseases. Maybe you've had a spec scan or an MRI and nothing's really showing up. I think it's certainly very prudent to, you know, start treatment and, you know, see uh, see how you feel. And, uh, you know, in my world, treatment doesn't really involve antibiotics, but uh, that's certainly an option you have at your disposal. But I think, you know, any kind of treatment to at least you know, see if that's uh, part of what's going on, because Again, most of the Lyme patients I see, if that really is part of the issue, and whether it's Lyme or co-infection, when we initiate treatment, you know, my expectation is to see some level of improvement uh, or herxing in the first you know, six to eight weeks. 
So at least it's a pretty good litmus test about, you know, whether that's part of what's going on with you. Now, also in your book, you mention several different protocols. And you're the first person I've come across to kind of say, well, I like Cowden over here. I like Dr. Zhang over here. What? How do you differentiate and pick and choose between these different protocols that are out there? And do you have one of your own? Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I said I saw Dr. Zhang. He was the doctor I saw when I had Lyme. And so, obviously, I personally used his protocol, and it's really what pulled me out of the weeds when I was feeling horrible. And, you know, since then, I've now used, you know, his protocol and, and these other ones you know, with thousands of Lyme patients. So what I started, you know, realizing, depending on the age of the person, the severity of their illness, uh, that some protocols just seem to work better than others. So I tried to lay out what I saw the best results with, you know, in my practice for adults, uh, the Dr. Zhang protocol has given me the best clinical results with the least side effects. And so that's why I sort of talk about that one first in the book. Uh, and the, the other thing I, I, I like about it, too, and, you know, in Chinese medicine, when they put together formulas, they're never single herb. Uh, in Western medicine, we kind of learn herbs sort of the way that doctors learn about drugs. You know, this is what the herb is. This is what it does. And then, you know, you learn how to combine herbs to get a specific effect. Well, in Chinese medicine, they learn from the get-go, you know, herbs are never used singly. They're always used in combination. And I think that combination is what really helps offset a lot of, you know, potential herxing. So herxing on Dr. Zhang's formulas is actually quite unusual. Uh, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it's, it's the rarest out of all the protocols out there that I've used. So I like the fact that, you know, it clinically works well, that people rarely get side effects. Um, you know, the downside to it is that it's expensive. And so for people who are trying to mine their pocketbook, uh, that may not be the best place to start. And then, you know, after I had, you know, personally used Zhang, I got to a point where I felt like I kind of hit a plateau. And then I tried some of Dr. Cowden's herbs. And I initially kind of did, you know, his whole protocol, which I found to be very complicated and, <laughs> and difficult to follow. It is. Changing every month. Yep. And it, it was, you know, getting to be kind of expensive. And then I read about, you know, Dr. Eva Sappy's work. And you know, she had really kind of looked at just the you know, handful of the herbs he was using. And I just started using them myself, started using that handful with other patients. So, you know, I call it my modified Cowden protocol, where it's really just four of the tinctures. And, you know, again, clinically, I find a lot of people respond very well to that combination. Uh, thing isn't often terrible, not as bad as some of the other ones. Um, and again, they're great, you know, for children because the herbs don't taste bad. You can mix them in water. And for people certainly who hate taking capsules, I find this very practical. Uh, so, you know, those are the two that I use the most with my patients. I've seen the best you know, clinical results with the least perking. But, you know, I've used Byron Weiss formulas. I've used Buner and I've used Beyond Balance. And, I mean, they're all great, you know, protocols. And I think when you look at what the herbs are doing, they're all accomplishing the same goal. You know, they're all trying to, you know, kill the Lyme or the co-infection. They're trying to help, you know, reduce inflammation. They're trying to help, you know, improve your circulation. So, they are addressing a lot of the aspects of what Lyme does to the body. Uh, but I, I found just in my practice, you know, with Byron White and Beyond Balance, now these are really strong herbs. And, you know, herxing is actually very common. Uh, so uh, for me, you know, that's not generally the first place I start. But, you know, I found over the years some people just do, well with, do better with one protocol over another for no real logical reason. 
so, you know, we have our process where we start a protocol. And if we find after six, eight weeks, there's really been no change. Fine. fine let's move on to the next one. You know, I don't think uh, with most of these protocols, you need to stay on for six months to figure out if it's helping you. That's fascinating. That's always one of my questions with any herb or any supplement is like, how long do you take it before you abandon it and saying, you know, this just isn't helpful for me. So hearing, you know, and I know you would have a lot more to say about that issue in particular, but you know, the six to eight week window I think is, is safe uh, to give everything a chance, chance to work and not to abandon it too soon. Cause you know, you do talk about people. Yeah. I've been on this for a year. You know, have you felt any better? No. Why are you still taking it? Well, I just started. Well, I think, it didn't stop. You know, I, you know. remember, Lyme is an extremely slow-growing organism, and that's why any Lyme treatment tends to be longer than, you know, expected because, you know, the average bacteria replicates every 20 minutes. You know, the research on Lyme is it replicates every 1 to 16 days. Okay. Where okay. did, who did you get? I tried to nail down Dr. Shoppy on that, and she wouldn't give me a number. Where did you get, what did you say, 16 days? Yeah, uh, you know, off the top of my head, uh, it's in my book. I have the reference list. Okay. Uh, but there is an article out there that looked at the growth cycle of Lyme, and they found that, yeah, its replication phase uh, was about uh, every one to 16 days. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now, the right. other the other thing I find, and I'm sure you find, and everybody out there, is dealing with fatigue. And that is one of the hallmark symptoms, and people who are struggling with getting over the hump of feeling better, often fatigue is the number one symptom. And we're not right. just talking about, oh, an afternoon yawn. They're talking about can't walk across the room fatigue. Right. Well, you know, fatigue with Lyme is, is, uh, is interesting because I think there's a lot of different reasons that Lyme patients get fatigued, and I don't think it's the same from person to person. You know, some of the things that I've seen in my practice, you know, is number one, a lot of people, after they get exposed to Lyme, develop hypothyroidism. Something happens with Lyme that interferes with their endocrine system, and their thyroid's not functioning well. And I've seen so many patients that, you know, never had a thyroid issue, there's no family history, and after Lyme, you know, we test their thyroid, and we find that it just isn't functioning very well. So for anyone with Lyme who's had chronic fatigue, if you've never had your thyroid checked, that would be a first place to start. The second thing is you know, looking at the adrenal gland. Again, kind of along the same vein that there's some sort of you know, endocrine hormone disruption. You know, your thyroid and your adrenals are very intimately related to each other, and they do communicate with each other. And, you know, your adrenals are really your big stress hormones. So, you know, anything that, that taxes your stress hormones ultimately can affect your energy level. But, you know, hormone like cortisol is involved in your energy. It's involved in sleep. It's involved in weight. So when I hear about people that say, yeah, I'm tired all day, I don't sleep well at night, I'm gaining weight, you know, that's sort of a red flag for me that maybe something in their cortisol is off. Perhaps we need to uh, address their adrenal glands. And the third big thing I see that, again, I don't think people realize, one of the things that Lyme does to your body is it damages your mitochondria. And, you know, mitochondria, for people who don't know, this is the part of your cell that literally is responsible for making energy. And in addition to that, antibiotics, damage your mitochondria. So if you get Lyme disease that damage your mitochondria and you start to get fatigued, and then your doctor puts you on long-term antibiotics, which are going to further damage that mitochondria, it's going to be very hard to get your energy back while you're on that treatment because you're continuing to, you know, burn out the things that 
you know, responsible for giving you energy. So I find with most of my Lyme patients, we do a lot of mitochondrial repair. Uh, unfortunately, we, we can do that nutritionally, but uh, it can take, you know, months to undo the damage that's happened to mitochondria. And uh, so, you know, nutrients like CoQ10, you know, and even with CoQ10, you know, there's a lot of research on in heart disease and other illnesses. And what I found in Lyme patients is that you have to use a lot of it to really make a big difference in energy. So what's a lot? Standard does a lot. Well, standard dose of CoQ10 might be 100 milligrams a day, and I've got patients with Lyme taking 600, 800 milligrams a day, and sometimes even 1,000. Wow, that is uh, a lot. And it takes that much to really start to repair the mitochondria and get it back on track. So, you know, CoQ10 is a great nutrient. I use a lot of acetyl-L-carnitine. Carnitine is another nutrient we know helps repair damaged mitochondria. Plus, acetyl-L-carnitine also has a great effect on memory. And a lot of my Lyme patients suffer from brain fog and poor memory. So I kind of feel like with the acetyl-L-carnitine, we're getting, you know, killing two birds with one stone on that one, that we can help repair mitochondria and also help improve cognitive function. And, of course, B vitamins are very important, particularly vitamin B6. You know, it's involved in every energy pathway in your body. Uh, so, you know, we can support the body nutritionally and rebuild the mitochondria, but people need to know that that doesn't happen overnight. And, you know, realistically, you could be looking at months before you really feel like you're getting your energy back. But it's also important to look at all those other endocrine things because sometimes it really is just as simple as correcting an underactive thyroid. Now, in this process, how do you work through the push-pull of pushing and exercising a little bit versus rest and recovery? Yeah, with exercise, what I find is that it really is about having some movement but really being cognizant of where your threshold is, you know, there's no benefit of exercising to the point that you're exhausted then for the next week, you know, after you've done some activity that doesn't help you in any way, shape or form. So, you know, what I talk about in my book are, you know, gentle exercises. You know, I look, I was an athlete my whole life. And I remember after I got Lyme that bone crushing fatigue, you know, the thought of doing any kind of movement was just, completely overwhelming. You know, laying on the couch was far more appealing. So I started just with stretching. I mean, literally I sat on the floor and just kind of stretched, which, you know, didn't seem like it was very much. And then, you know, then was a few laps around the house or maybe a lap around the neighborhood. And, you know, eventually it took a while. I started studying martial arts and, you know, seven years later I got a black belt. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) It took a long time to get that. But I think, you know, no matter where your fitness level is and no matter how horrible you feel, there can be some element of gentle movement you can do just to get your body going. You know, that movement is so important for bringing oxygen into your tissue. It's a way of, you know, moving your lymph. And we've got some pretty good evidence that, you know, Lyme likes to hide in our lymph. So the more we move it, it's like literally, you know, cleaning out the wastebasket, getting rid of the junk, bringing in the fresh stuff. and, you know, I've had people in wheelchairs. I've had people who are very limited in their mobility that can still do something. I think we get a big mental hurdle, again, when we're tired, that we just don't want to do anything. And it's a tough one to get over, and I, I totally get it. But I think there's also a huge mental benefit of movement. It's not just the physical aspect. I think it's good for our psyche, and it's good for our brain. So start small, start with what you can. And I've had people do, you know, yoga and yoga could be adapted to you know, pretty much any fitness level. And other people do chai, tai chi or maybe it's just walking or swimming. 
you know, it depends on what you have access to and kind of what you enjoy. But uh, start small, and if you feel like it was too much, it was. And next time you do it, don't go that long, don't go that hard. You know, and again, practically speaking, it can take months uh, to get to a point where you really feel like you're moving well. But I think so many Lyme patients end up with very stiff tissue that uh, you're not going to undo that in a day or a week or a month. It's going to take a while, but it's, it's the consistency that makes a difference. So that little bit every day, even though it doesn't feel like much, has a cumulative effect that really adds up and can make a big difference. Dr. Engels, you have been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much. And I want to give you the last word. If there are any question I forgot to ask, A, and then B, how can folks get a hold of you and find out about your book? Sure. Well, you know, I think, you know, my, my parting word is always, you know, uh, hang in there. <laughs> you know, yes. Don't give up. You know, I, I just know that so many people go through various Lyme treatments. In fact, I just spoke with a woman yesterday, a potential new patient. She's been all over the world. She's seen all the top doctors, and she still feels terrible. And I know how frustrating it is and expensive, but, you know, there's always something out there. And, you know, network with other Lyme patients and, you know, reach out to other practitioners. You know, one of the things we do in our office is that, you know, we offer a free 15-minute consultation just to talk a little bit about what's going on and is it a good fit. And I think a lot of Lyme doctors out there do that kind of thing. So. Don't be shy to interview other people. And, um, you know, look, everyone's got their strength and weakness, and we all do things a little bit different. But uh, what I find is that there's usually something that can be done and maybe something you've never done before. Uh, so just, you know, hang in there and uh, keep reaching out and uh, uh, and don't be afraid to, to try something new. But, you know, if people want to reach uh, reach me, uh, the best place is if they go to my website. It's darreningelsnd.com. That's D-A-R-I-N-I-N-G-E-L-S-N is in Nancy, D is David.com. And we've got a lot of information about Lyme and information about the book. So uh, we'd love you to join us on, you know, social media and be on our newsletter. And you know, we really want to help just inform and educate people about what's going on in the Lyme world. Terrific. And your book's on Amazon, I assume? Yep. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, every major uh, book retailer is carrying it. And the name of that, again, is The Lyme Solution, A Five-Part Plan by Dr. Darren Engels. Dr. Engels, thanks so much. Great. Thanks. Okay. This was a really interesting interview. And, you know, the way he was talking about microbes in different parts of the body and the microbiome and things like that. It reminds me how the conversation has changed about cancer, actually. Okay. Because, you know, in the beginning and with with bugs, too, um, we were talking about, oh, how they're bad and we need to keep our bodies pure and it, we, kill have everything. To, we have to kill everything. And nowadays, in 2018, the conversation is more about, no, we don't have to kill everything. We need to figure out why they turned bad in the first place and turn off the thing that that made them bad. So there's, a, I think there's a connection there. So really the interface with the immune system and how the immune system monitors and modulates 
And I think vice versa, too. The yeah. bugs modulate the immune system. The immune system modulates the bugs. And when everybody's working in dynamic tension, I won't say harmony, but there's peace, like mob peace. <laughs> so when the dons have an agreement, everybody gets their piece of the pie. And when the agreement gets broken... We have a turf war. We have a turf war. That's, <laughs> I was going to say something else, but that's... Yes, exactly. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please head on over to iTunes, click on a review. If you really like what we're doing, head on over to patreon.com, search for Lime Ninja Radio, and donate. Become a patron. And thank you this week. John and Lisa joined up at the $3 level. We really, really appreciate that. If you donate at the $10 level, we'll send you a copy of our top 10 transcripts. Yes, the Lime Ninja top 10 transcripts are the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like Dr. Richard Horowitz, the real food rebel Brenda Constantino, and the genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. Speaking of Bob Miller, we have a new interview with him coming up real soon. All right. I think we'll put that out next week. So if you're a Bob Miller fan like I am, stay tuned. And if you have any feedback for us, good, bad, or ugly, send it to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We do read every email, and we respond to as many as we can. Also, if you don't know your Lime score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash tracker and fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. It is free. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete without the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know a ninja and time once had a race? Time is still running. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.